Welcome to The Brave, a podcast all about resilience and dealing with the challenges and complexity of life in the 21st century, which is getting more and more unusual and strange as the weeks come on. Um, I'm afraid there has been a bit of a gap in recording for the past couple of months. That's basically been because I've been buying a house and I didn't realise how stressful that would be. But I'm back, we are back, and we're actually doing a special episode this week for York Design Week, which is on all this week. There's loads of events. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can go and find out what's on. But I'm really pleased to say we have two special guests for this episode. I'm doing my best Melvin Bragg impression and I have two very highly esteemed and knowledgeable guests. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Steph, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. Hi. Hi, everybody. Um, Thanks for uh, having me on this wonderful podcast, Beth, and it's a real pleasure to be here. My name is Steph Connor, and um, I'm a lecturer in the music department at the University of York. I'm a composer and a singer. Awesome. Thanks so much, Steph. It's my pleasure to have you here. And we've also got Des Clark, who you have heard on the podcast before, because he is my long-suffering partner, but he's also going to tell you a little bit about what else he gets up to as well. Yeah, so as well as editing this um, podcast, which always goes uncredited, um, I am also a a musician, uh, like Steph, but... um, a composer who also studied at the University of York, which is where we know each other from, and um, a visual artist as well. A relatively recent entrant into the visual arts. Um, but yeah, that's kind of part of the topic of the podcast today, I think. Yeah, so we're kind of building off the subject of resilience and looking at creativity and essentially crises in creativity and how big kind of mammoth events like pandemics or wars or whatever impact creative work both presently um so obviously Steph and Des are currently practicing creativity and producing work and Steph's actually got an album which is out today which we're going to leave again all the details of and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast but how is kind of current conditions affecting their work their creativity and then we'll also do a little bit of a deep dive into the past and kind of look at art and music from history and some of the trends essentially we can take from that on how global events and cultural kind of calamities affected the production of creative work so to kick off I'd love to ask you both kind of how how has the pandemic affected your practice kind of your work that you're producing at the moment um i okay i i I will jump in and uh and start uh it it in some ways it's been a pain in the bum uh and in other ways uh, i've been really lucky uh i guess um i've seen a lot of colleagues really suffering particularly self-employed musicians from a, a total devastating loss of all work and income and opportunities. And for, from, from my point of view, uh, I watched um, a year's worth of performances kind of just obliterated. So it was that side of it was really depressing and uh, not being able to get together in a room with my colleagues and make music, which is my kind of the thing that I devoted my life to. You know, I spent my whole youth training for um, countless sleepless nights and hours and hours and hours of work invested in and just not being able to do that thing that makes me feel like myself is kind of is, is sad. 
But at the same time, I'm incredibly grateful because I have a part-time position at the University of York, which means that I can survive and uh, I can still be in touch with my colleagues and helping students, talking about music, lecturing. And so I'm really busy and I'm kind of fulfilled and I'm learning new skills. So I'm learning how to uh, mix audio properly, which I've always been really bad at, and make videos and and, and create stuff in my bedroom, which uh, I think we're all going to be doing a lot more of in future. <laughs> Des, does that kind of chime in with your experience? It does, yes. Um, so, yeah, all performances just disappearing. I mean, the the people who work full time as freelance musicians are the ones who've been hit the hardest by all of this. But as a composer and as a performer, yeah, it's it's been kind of sad not to have access to any of that this year, like cancelled premieres, um, cancelled performances, cancelled uh, events. Um, and so there's not really been anything happening kind of in the real world. But then actually there have been a few kind of, um, you know, there have been, there's been sort of an outpouring of creativity in the ways that people have been able to access creativity. So the number of, you know, internet creative projects like um, orchestras putting out, you know, content in a way that they never would before um, is really interesting to see. Um, and for me, like, I've, I've actually been quite creative this during this whole process because you know there's 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 projects coming up which are like oh we're pairing composers and performers together and like um finding ways of kind of overcoming the adversity so while it's been extremely disruptive you know there has been an enormous outpouring of creativity and i i do think that actually being put through stressful situations like this does provoke people into kind of finding creative responses um on another side, um, just before all this kicked off in, in about January, I kind of started exploring some um, some visual art uh, in, as a kind of counterpoint to the musical work I do. And um, lockdown obviously provided the kind of like the the time and the space in which to explore that. So I've put an awful lot of time into a different discipline, a different practice than the one I've usually spent time on, and that's been actually incredibly fulfilling. Um, and it's and it's been has been an enormous pickup. And actually, it's much easier to share uh, visual art than it is to share music in this sort of situation. And that's that kind of being forced to engage in a different way with my practice has been quite a, you know, it's been a it's been a provocative and um, fertile challenge for me, and I've actually kind of really enjoyed it. So I. Th- The other thing I'm seeing at the moment is that obviously as a sector, creative sectors have been really hard hit and we obviously had the government support package that was put together and there was almost like a numerical value put on the sector. You know, we said we're going to give this X amount of support because this sector is worth X amount to the economy. Do you think people's attitudes have changed towards creative industries? Because obviously there was that whole cyber, you know, get a job in cyber scandal as well for the person who wanted to pursue a ballet career. Do you think this has prompted us to have conversations about the place of the creative sector? It's a good question. Um, I think, and kind of following on from the last one, I think the role of of actually creative practice has never been more front and centre because it, I mean, we're talking about our experiences as kind of creative professionals in quotes, but the amount of creativity that, that, that kind of other people have been exploring and like people learning instruments, like you say, like doing, doing picking up, taking up painting or drawing or kind of like finding a creative practice that they had perhaps neglected or never, or never started. And they've, they've, they've kind of embraced that. Or I've seen, I've seen an awful lot of that on social media, but in terms of the creative industries, 
I mean, it's difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, my bubble is obviously going on about it all the time. Um, but I, cu- I couldn't say what the opinion of the wider of, of the wider society is. It's, yeah, it's hard to tell because my bubble is all outrage, you know, about how undervalued artists feel as a result of things like that abominable, disgraceful marketing campaign. Um, but then there are other bubbles full of people who think that artists are just, you know, sitting around scrounging off the, the state, indulging themselves. And, 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 you know, there are plenty of people out there who think that, which is a shame, you know, and I'm, I'd love to spend more time communicating with those people because I'm sure they wouldn't think that if they hung around with people in my bubble, you know, but our bubbles are getting a bit too, uh, too far apart and we're not listening to each other anymore, which is one of the problems with social media. And of course, because we're all stuck at home, we're spending too much time on that and, not interacting with people outside of our bubbles which is a bad thing (laughs) yeah definitely because I found like on my work is I'm a marketer my work is unashamedly commercial it's I make money that's what I do and I found that creativity has become such an asset during this period because consumers have changed you know the whole industry changed overnight and suddenly the people who could be creative and come up with new solutions in a range of disciplines actually got ahead financially. So in my work, I've seen the benefits of being creative, but I completely appreciate what you're saying. You know, not everyone sees that and we do operate in these kind of discrete bubbles, which is yeah problematic to say the least. But I think it's fair to say that almost everybody has been watching more telly or reading more books. I mean, people are taking in creative work people are watching Netflix all the time and like that's entirely creative work. So I think it probably depends on your definition of creative industries. You know what I mean? Like going to see the ballet or watching Netflix. Are those two things comparable? Arguably perhaps, but, but I think in most, most people's brains, they're completely different. Mm. I don't know. Some, the world is full of people who have a kind of, I don't know, a a fantasy that because, um, something looks like it maybe is quite fun to do that it's not really work um but that's perhaps a kind of in, insidious thing that that's led to being to a lot of this sort of thing being devalued but another issue is that everything is available online which makes it so easy to access and when something is very easy to access it's very easy to forget that it was difficult to create difficult and expensive and a lot of resources went into it and to be quite honest I don't think it, it necessarily helps that so many big arts organizations started putting out a lot of content for free at the beginning of the pandemic I mean it was great that they people had access to so much culture online but at the same time it had the effect of slightly devaluing it um not that not that it's, I mean, it's not as simple as that. Um, in, in many ways, it's really, really great that they did that. But in some ways, it's also problematic. Mm. Yeah. Do you, do you think audiences, especially kind of for visual or performance based things, will go back to, you know, it will be the way it was before? Do you think something has kind of fundamentally changed here? My guess is that something has fundamentally changed. Um there are things that I really hope will go back to normal and there are things that I'm afraid won't go back to normal. And one of the things that I suspect might uh, endure is an expectation that a lot of artists will, will be creating content at home using their own resources and their own studios um, because um, that's now, you know, been proven to be an economical way of 
producing content that people still want to engage with. So why would um, the gatekeepers to um, to the audiences continue to spend the same kind of amounts of money that they have been hiring venues and things like that? I don't know. I wonder. We'll see. <laughs> mm. So looking back to the past, you know, we discussed a lot about the impact on the present, but obviously we're not the only society out of history that has undergone a cataclysmic change. I did a podcast episode on some of the effects of the Black Death, just because that was a period I studied at university and knew a little bit about. But can you think of any notable examples from history where there has been a big calamity, a big event, whatever it may be, and we've seen evidence of that kind of in art and music of that time? Um Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, dark and terrible happenings uh, have always found their way into creative expression as far as I can tell. Um, And, you know, the Black Death is a great example because some of the most beautiful uh, Middle English lyrics um, have this kind of memento mori subject matter, um, sometimes like really quite cheerful songs about how life is short and everybody's going to die, um, but but then just expressed in this sublimely beautiful way. Well, I know because you, you've done a lot of work in the kind of dark ages, and I'm doing that in air quotes, Anglo-Saxon music in particular. And obviously that's a period we all think that there was no culture, the Romans had left, there was nothing there, but there seems to be a rich you know, body of material that you were able to draw on. And the, that's really interesting to me. Oh, well, I, thank you for bringing up um, the Anglo-Saxon period because it just so happens that my new album is based on the uh, <laughs> uh, old English texts from the 10th century. And actually, I mean, the, the description Dark Ages is a bit of a dirty word among medievalists now because it's anything but. Um, there was an absolute explosion of culture, um, you know, uh, from... From the period after the kind of the the, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes arrived after the Romans had left up until the Norman Conquest, and of course beyond the Norman Conquest as well. But it's just not, we're talking about the Anglo-Saxons right now. Um, there was writing, literature, poetry. Um, incredible music I mean the Winchester Tropa one of our earliest documents of polyphony I think the earliest kind of document of um, European polyphony um, is is stunningly beautiful and there's some amazing recordings of that out there and um, and documents like the Exeter book of poetry is just rich and wonderful and full of complexity and depth and, and magic and, uh, and, and dark ages could not be a, a less accurate description of that period. Yeah, I have a very unoriginal theory that kind of periods of massive upheaval and change actually do force people to try new things you know what they couldn't do what was done before because that world doesn't exist or those economic conditions don't exist so they're forced to innovate they're forced to find new ways and uh, we actually can only kind of I don't like the whole you know we're civilizing there's a linear narrative to civilization but the only way we kind of move forward and have new forms of expression is through things going wrong and people trying something different yeah that's totally true I think as as an economic argument for one um, but it's also true in terms of the way uh, artists conceive of their own practice. Like in the in preparation for this, I did a little bit of reading about um, uh, World War One, uh, its effect on, on the artist, artistic traditions, and um, you know, obviously, kind of uh, modernism already existed in some form before the First World War. 
but you can't get away from the fact that it was a kind of a kind of cataclysmic event in the formation of like the art of the 20th, 20th century. Um, I mean, so many um, artists that we we think of central to the development of like 20th century art had those formative experiences in World War One which shaped their practice. So you see this embedding of this kind of mass trauma in the modes of expression themselves, perhaps like the Anglo-Saxon um, songs about death, you know, it's kind of embedded into the um, into the, the content and the forms themselves. Um, I mean, I've got a couple of quotes here. Well, not, well, I've got one quote, which is from uh, Virginia Woolf, who said, um, World War One was like a chasm in a smooth road, um, referring to, like, the development of literature um, in the early 20th century. But you also have, like, André Breton, you know, worked as a... Um, a surgical orderly dealing with shell shock uh, in World War One, and that kind of led explicitly to the development of like surrealism and looking beyond the um, beyond the conscious. I mean, and it's like so many artists, like explicitly wanted to look beyond the the structures and the preconceptions and the assumptions that underpinned the practice of the past, because they, you know, as in lots of other parts of society, they thought like this. You know that clearly it wasn't working in some way. So you need to have ways. If you ha- if you have an experience that you can't embed in your existing practice, your practice has to develop, it has to change, it has to accommodate um, these experiences. And you know you'll find a lot of people arguing that the trauma of these like political and um, social upheavals of things like wars are absolutely kind of central to that. That's really fascinating, isn't it? It, it, it? There's the whole argument that we have the kind of the horror of the mechanized slaughter of World War One to thank for modernism, and because people were just finding ways to express express what they felt as a result of, of of that trauma in art, and and no existing forms, no existing artistic vocabularies were up to the task and so so many people just kind of tried to do away with the whole of the, the historical baggage that was in their existing practice mm. absolutely i can't help but think that like the wasteland and boulez's second piano sonata you know have something in common there that they're kind of casting off these forms that came before and kind of exploring this like both pieces obviously really alienating really like blasting apart the uh the forms that they that they previously inhabited in the piano sonata and like the epic poem um but in this kind of like ruined way you know this kind of totally transformed way um i can't help but see a a a resonance there and um i mean if you think about like shostakovich or like even even like you know the prokofiev second piano concerto you can hear the kind of the rhythms of industry and and dehumanization in those pieces and like it's it's hard obviously to draw really concrete links and to say you know well if we didn't have you know, Stalin, we wouldn't have, like, mechanist, mechanistic-sounding music. That's, that's that's a facetious thing to say. But, like, there is also, like, definitely, you know, links between these things. But also, kind of, if you take World War One as an example, a lot of the kind of artwork that was prompted by that, or we could argue was prompted by that, was was produced by a certain socio-economic and gender-specific group. You know, it's mainly kind of, like middle class to upper class white males that's the work that has survived that's the survivorship bias and I'm kind of interested in the fact that you know we're 
we're rightly so having all of this kind of outrage over kind of Black Lives Matter. And do we see kind of in history moments where groups do kind of finally get a voice? And is that kind of reflected in creativity? It's a great point. Um, there's, uh, it's, a, it's a big, thorny, difficult topic trying to understand or at least make intelligent guesses about what has why the things that have survived have survived and what 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 is in the canon and why and does it deserve to be there and has it truly earned its place and is there something better out there which we don't know about which should be in there Um, and of course we can never know how history would have been if events had been different. So in a way, lots of those questions are questions that we can't answer, but um, it's definitely the case that, uh, I mean, in, in, in the modern world now, with uh, because we, we, we all have um, access to so much culture and so much creativity through the internet, at last we have um, an, an easy demonstration that we can see every single day online that there is art of at least equal value being created by women as by men, by people of colour, you know, by people that have been marginalised, historically suppressed um, and and had their voices denied to them. And uh, so I think it's fair to say that if we went back into the deeper parts of history and um, with a time machine and started listening to the artists whose work hadn't survived, we would find it just as beautiful as what had survived. But of course we can't do that. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good point. Don't don't wish for what you can't have in a way, or don't yeah, don't kind of suppose what you can't surmise. But I do I do think it's it's interesting to think about this kind of resilience of enduring forms and things kind of they survive for a reason, they survive for a structural reason, because they're either important to the culture or other stuff has been filtered out, if that makes sense. The idea of being important to a culture is an interesting one though, isn't it? Because it's like who is a who, what, who defines what culture is, you know what I mean? Like, who, who, who is it important to? Is it important to, you know, Ramesses II? Or is it important to, like, the Egyptian working in the fields? Oh, that's yeah that's a good a good point as well i mean a lot of what a lot of what survived survives because it was somehow useful to a, a propagandist somewhere along the line in history um i mean you know we have really really tiny examples of music from the ancient world from antiquity but um i mean one of the really biggest ones the um delphic paean of athenaeus survived because it was inscribed into into marble and it was associated with a you know a hugely important kind of cultural event a, a festival and um and and pieces you know and, and kind of glorifying um figures at the time and i think of sort of purcell and um and handel and and the praise of of monarchs and 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 so much has survived because it was useful to people at the time when it was created i was just thinking you know we're talking about like the internet and all of the culture that's available now to people but no one can consume that culture in its entirety you know no I mean there was kind of a point they've surmised in like the 16th century where there no one could have read at this point every book produced but before that they feasibly could have in a human lifetime that problem is intensified to the millionth degree now so do we have an issue in kind of people being able to surface the content the art the creativity that 
they want to or like speaks to them if that makes sense yeah that does make sense it, it makes you think in a way that that um critics and the kind of the arbiters of taste they they do have their purpose because it, it is really overwhelming i mean it's the kind of the the postmodern uh problem isn't it is that we're all totally overwhelmed by choice and we don't know how to make decisions and we do use proxies for forming judgments about everything because we don't have time to think about everything in enough detail to make choices and and Mm. so we just follow blogs you know when we have classical reviewers who say these are the albums to listen to right now and so we listen to them and uh, and and it's kind of necessary because we're only human and we don't have limitless time (laughs) It's kind of optimistic to say it's the critics, though, because how often is it the, the the blind algorithm, you know, taking what you listen to and kind of doing its thing in a black box and spitting out some more recommendations, you know? Well, that's true, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> how much do we even know about what's out there? Is, are we just being curated this tiny fraction by the computers? And, like, who even knows? Who even knows what's well, out there? Well, that's the thing. If those algorithms are there to satisfy you and they will produce, you know, they provide content that satisfies you you'll never be challenged you'll never be challenged by something you don't like and you'll only be fed things that are based on the things you've liked before so you just end up in this kind of regressive small little narrow niche mm. so i think possibly people do you know react respond to that and do go and seek new things out i mean i think we all probably do um what another perspective though as a, as a creative artist i find it kind of liberating that like you're never going to be part of the canon because there's too many there's too much now to, for there even to be a canon. Do you know what I mean? Like there's so much content that you're, you know, what, what realistically could any creative artist achieve? I mean, there's just so much out there that the idea of creating like the work or something to me seems now ridiculous. And it's much more about uh, that that relationship with the audience can be more, can be more intimate and can, can be less kind of vaultingly ambitious. And it kind of puts paid to the idea of like the artist as, you know, a kind of godlike figure straddling culture and kind of remaking the world in their own image. That just seems, you know, impossible and absurd in the cultural world that we live in. I, I agree, Des. I think that's a really great point. Um, this kind of mass availability of culture and the uh, overwhelming um, diversity of what we all have access to, it... it, it in a way, I mean, it's it's kind of tearing down the old romantic notion of the, you know, these these geniuses, these genius kind of um, pinnacles of human achievement, um, and and replacing it with the kind of overwhelming variety of of, of human endeavor and, and creativity, and and in some ways that's nice because it's like recording technology has got because the advent of recording technology was a huge rupture you know it was an enormous event that totally changed music and and now I feel like we're at another significant watershed on the same level which is almost balancing it out and going backwards and it's almost like recording doesn't even exist anymore because recordings are so freely available that they don't that they, they're, they're not so much singular artifacts now so it's almost like we're back to being kind of bards wandering wandering around the country just making kind of musical events and and and, and constantly creating on a much smaller scale um things that aren't supposed to kind of stand up as as, as great cultural artefacts that, that, that stand the test of time and, and go down in history <laughs> absolutely steph absolutely 
And you can see this kind of wider in the creative or the creator industry where people now, you know, are launching newsletters that will sustain them, that will provide like a a reasonable, a decent salary, but they only have a thousand to two thousand people on their email list. And it's this idea of like a thousand true fans. And I, I disagree a little bit. I think there's still kind of these massive cultural figures that will always exist, um, you know, Beyonce. And I think they'll always have their place and the market will... And sorry, I always talk about things in terms of the market and use horrible capitalist language, but there we are. But the market will always have a winner-takes-all mentality, but the long tail, the niche, loads more people will be able to exploit that. That that would be my prediction. But the levels of engagement are completely different now. Because if you look at, like, the UK top, you know, the UK number one or whatever... Like, it's all crap now. And I don't mean that to say, oh, modern pop music is rubbish. I mean, like, people really don't like that sort of music particularly much. I don't think you'll find many people who are, like, avid fans of whatever bland pop comes out. I think it's it's a kind of lowest common denominator kind of, like, please as many people a little bit as you can. But all those people will have music that they prefer. Ah, yeah, oh, yeah. You're quite right. Yeah, because... It, well, that's the social media phenomenon now, isn't it? It's not quality engagement that matters, that, you know, the algorithms are not measuring that. What they're measuring is, uh, you know, they're just the number of subscribers, the number of clicks, which is why people like Katie Hopkins get famous, because, you know, she can be universally hated, but as long as people are, you know, sharing her stuff, even if it's in outrage, then um, then it gets a boost and, and it seems like maybe that's affecting the popular music industry. But I mean, just talking about stuff that I really don't know anything about. So No, neither do I. And I've got a little bit of kind of, you know, grumpy old artist. It's all crap now. But I do think that's probably true to a little to, to an extent anyway. But yeah, I'm also strength well outside of my area of expertise here. I'm actually quite glad that you brought the market into, into it, Bethan. I mean, because, you know, that that is a... It's a really important part of visibility on the internet. I mean, the, the plain fact is that yes, okay, maybe there are these still still these stories happening on where somebody creates something in their bedroom and then shares it with their mates, and then organically it goes viral. I mean, you know, but most of the time things go viral because people pay to make them viral, right? Is that fair? Yeah, uh, I would say that was fair. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a real. It's a, it's about it's about money. <laughs> yeah, it's pay to play. I think a lot of a lot of industry, almost any industry, is like that. There's the recent kind of meme that went around that was like, "How do you become a Sunday Times bestseller?" Well, you need sixty grand and just buy a shit ton of your own books, and you're on the list. Oh, oh no! That actually happened, wasn't it? There was an artist who put like yeah. 200 of his own book or something, wasn't it? I remember seeing that. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm going to go buy two. Oh, wait a minute. I can't afford to buy 200 of my own CDs. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, please do go and buy 200 each of Steph's CDs so we can test out our theory and see if we can get her to number one on the UK charts and then Des can be all moany and grumpy about that. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. That is our time is up, I'm afraid. And in true Melvin Bragg, fashion basically i just want his job so i'm just trying to be him now but um thank you so much for coming on um if if you want to just let the listeners know where they can find out more about you and stuff where can we buy your cd from oh yay um well you can go to stephconner.com which is s-t-e-f-c-o-n-n-e-r um to find out more about my cd which was released today on delphian records 
Perfect. And Des, where can we find out more about your works and your plots? Oh, yeah. Well, you can also go to uh, desmondclark.com. Clark with an E. And it's all there. It's all there. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, both of you, for coming on the episode. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope that has been interesting. It's also been a pleasure to be part of York Design Week. And as I said, please go and find out more about the programme and what's on. I think there's about 100 events I was looking at earlier and filling up my calendar. And it looks ace. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, it would help me out. Speaking of algorithms, it would be great if you left a rating and or a review because that helps the algorithms surface my content more people and I too can be top of the charts as well you can also find out more about the brave online at bethinvincent.com forward slash the brave podcast because I'm too cheap to buy its own domain name but that may change in the very near future and I hope to be with you very soon with our next episode but until then thank you so much for listening Thank you.